Well, I don't know if you happen to catch it, but just a couple weeks ago on April Fool's Day, uh, a guy came forward in California and he claimed that he won the California uh, Powerball. Did you guys see that? He, he said, I, I won $425 million. Now, the thing about this particular April Fool's joke was, it wasn't an April Fool's joke. He actually had the one and only winning ticket in the Powerball, and he claimed the sixth largest prize ever. He got it all to himself, $425 million. Here's a picture of him. Now, you notice he's holding the check up in front of his face. He wanted to try to keep as anonymous as he possibly could. So even though his name's right on the check, everybody knows who he is. There he is. He's holding up this check. $425 million. Man, now, I know this is Easter and nobody wants to, like, lie or anything like that, so uh, play along with me here. How many of you uh, know somebody that's ever played the lottery? You know, you've never played it yourself, but you know somebody, you've got a, a cousin or something, they've played the, the lottery before, yeah? All right. Uh, how many of you have ever thought about what it would be like? I know you haven't done it, you know, played it, but how many of you ever thought if I would play it and I would win, how many of you ever thought about what you would do with that kind of money? That's a lot of cash, right? <laughs> yeah. You know, they've actually done some studies and surveys that have said, well, what would you do if you had a, a lot of money come in all at once? And three things always come up. First thing that people say is, I would pay off my debt. How many of you would pay off some debt? All right, hopefully $425 million would cover it. If not, we need to talk because you got some real problems. All right, so debt is the, the first thing that people always say. Second thing is, I would buy some new stuff. I would get a new car, maybe a new house, uh, a boat. Some people would even get a new you, right? A little, little plastic surgery. You know, lift this, tuck that, enhance that, whatever, you know. So it, it's, you, you get some new stuff there. So you pay off debt, you, you get some new things. Then the, the third thing that, that people always say is, look, I would want to put away some money for the future. I, I would want to save up, know that my future is secure. Now, here's the thing about that. All three of those things that people want financially are the exact same three things that you want for yourself spiritually. Now, you've probably never thought of that before, but it's true. Don't you want to know that any spiritual debt that you have that you're able to get out of it? And isn't there sometimes when you're, you're standing there and you're looking in the mirror and there's things that you're seeing in the mirror that you don't like about yourself? And I'm not just talking about physical things. You're just being honest with yourself and you're saying, man, there's some things that I've done in my past I'm just not really happy about. And you have some shame, you have some regret. And you're like, if I could just push the reset button and start all over again, have a, a brand new me that I'm staring at there in the mirror, man, I would hit that button in a second. And don't all of us want to know what's going to happen to us spiritually when we die? That, that we're going to be okay with God? That, that we have a, a spiritual future with Him and not eternal separation from Him? So isn't that fascinating that the same things that you want with your finances are what you want spiritually as well? And so that's what I want to talk to you about here a little bit this morning because the good news of this Easter Sunday morning is unlike the lottery, where you have a 1 in 175 million shot of actually winning it, what I'm sharing with you this morning, we'll look at the Bible here in just a second, is something that's readily available to you. You don't have to hope for it. You don't have to buy a lottery ticket and pray that you're the, the one person that happens to hit it. No, this is readily available if you'll just simply accept it. And so that's what I want to share with you here today. So if you have a Bible, turn to uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, 
verse 17. Again, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17. If you don't have a Bible, that's fine. You can just pull out your program there. Inside, you're going to find the little sheet there. You can follow along with everything on there. Everything will also be up on the screens. Or if you have a smartphone here this morning with you, you want to pull that out, you can download the Version app. Go to Version, download the app, then look up exponentialchurch.tv and everything that happens on the screens, you can watch right there on your phone as well. So uh, follow along with that. And by the way, if you need a Bible at the end of today's experience, just stop out our uh, Welcome Center and we'll give you a Bible for absolutely free. We want to make sure that you have access to God's Word. All right, so are you there in 2 Corinthians 5.17? Yes, no, you got it in some way. All right, maybe you're looking at the paper. All right, before we actually look at that, let me give you a little bit of context behind who it is that's writing this particular verse of Scripture. The guy's name is Paul. Now, Paul was a, uh, a Jewish guy. He lived there in Israel. And Paul, as he was growing up, he lived in a very privileged home. He, he and his family, they had quite a bit of money. Paul got the very best education as a kid as he was growing up. And Paul, eventually, as a young man, becomes a sort of a religious leader. And so he's very religious. He's very educated. He's very zealous for God. I mean, he has this passion for God like you wouldn't believe. Now, Paul was a contemporary of Jesus. He was maybe a, a generation younger than what Jesus was, but he lived there in the same time and in the same place as Jesus. Here's the deal, though. Paul hated Jesus. Couldn't stand him. You know why? It's because Jesus was walking around saying, I'm God. I can forgive your sins. You can kill me and I'll be raised back to life. Well, for a, a, a young guy like Paul who was zealous for God's word, this kind of talk was complete blasphemy. I mean, they wouldn't even speak the name of God. And yet here's this guy walking around claiming to be God, God in the, the flesh. And so I'm sure there was no tears shed when Paul heard that Jesus had been crucified. He's like, good. We're done with that. That guy was crazy. But then three days later, something happens. A rumor starts that this same Jesus who had just been crucified has risen again from the dead. And again, Paul's not happy about this because all of a sudden these, these 70 or so people are saying, look, we've seen Jesus we ate with them. We, we've talked with them. We, we put our, our fingers in the nail prints where, uh, where they went through his hand there. I mean, we've seen him alive. And they start to say, this really was God. And you need to become a follower of his. Because he's the same God that we are following in the Old Testament of the Bible. He, he's just continuing on. There's this new covenant that's come now. He has come. He's the Messiah that it will forgive all of your sins. Well, again, for Paul, this is complete blasphemy. And now not only is there this one guy, Jesus, but now there's this whole group of people that are trying to convert other people, Jewish people, to become followers of Christ. And so Paul is this young religious guy. He makes it his mission to stamp out this new thing called Christianity. He actually orders the execution of anybody that dares to speak the name of Jesus. And so that's what he's doing. That, that's his new mission. He was a, a tent maker by trade, but really his passion, his zeal was to stamp out this Christian movement. Then a miracle happens. 
Paul one day, he's riding on his horse to the town of Damascus. Why is he going to Damascus? He had heard that people there were becoming followers of Jesus. So what's he doing? He, he's on his way to execute them. Guess who he meets on the way? Jesus. <laughs> he meets Jesus, and Jesus is right there in front of him. And all of a sudden, he can't deny it anymore that this is truly the Son of God. He really is everything that he said that he was. I mean, he said that he was God. He said that he would rise again from the dead. Here he is. He's standing right in front of me. He's like, truly, you are the Lord. In that moment, Jesus forgives Paul of all the wrong that he had done, all the sins that he committed, all the the misplaced zeal that he had. Paul has a complete transformation. Not only is he forgiven, but he's able to hit that reset button and he gets a brand new life. He gets a new purpose. You know what his new purpose is? Instead of trying to stamp out Christianity, he says, I'm going to make it my mission to make sure that this message goes all over the world. If you know anything about Paul in the Bible, He's really a hero to many in, in the faith. I mean, he ended up writing 13 of the, the New Testament books of, of, of Scripture. He does. He travels all over the then-known world. Now, remember, he grew up in a very cushy home. He had everything he could have possibly have wanted. All the comforts of life. But yet he gives all that up in order to make sure that every single man, woman, boy, and girl can hear the message about Jesus. And Paul went through a lot in his lifetime doing that. Before we get to 2 Corinthians 5.17, let me read another scripture passage to you. In 2 Corinthians 11.23-28, Paul's sort of recounting some of his, his travels and some of the things that's happened as he's been trying to get this message of Jesus out to people. He says, I've worked much harder, been in prison more frequently, been flogged more severely, and been exposed to death again and again. Again, he's saying this is a result of his sharing Jesus' message. He says, five times I received from the Jews the 40 lashes minus one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was pelted with stones. Three times I was shipwrecked. I spent a night and a day in the open sea. I've been constantly on the move. I've been in danger from rivers, in danger from bandits, in danger from my fellow Jews, in danger from Gentiles, in danger in the city, in danger in the country, in danger at sea, and in danger from false believers. I have labored and toiled and often gone without sleep. I have known hunger and thirst and have gone without food. I have been cold and naked. Besides everything else, I face daily the pressure of my concern for all the churches. Let me ask you a question this morning. Would you go through all that stuff that I just read that Paul went through if you didn't really believe that Jesus had been resurrected from the dead? No. But see, there, there's a lot of people, critics of the Bible, that, that they'll say, well, it's all just a bunch of fairy tales. Paul didn't think it was a fairy tale. In fact, he went so far as he actually ends up, at the end of his life, he gets beheaded for his belief in Jesus. Maybe you know this, maybe you don't, but ten of the original twelve disciples, and again, keep in mind that, that uh, Paul was not one of those original disciples, but ten of the twelve were martyred for their belief that Jesus really was resurrected from the dead. Now, I said this last Easter, but I want to say it again. You will die for something that you believe to be true, 
but you will not die for something that you know beyond a shadow of a doubt is a lie. Does that make sense? You, you could be misguided and die for a false belief, but if you know that it's a false belief, you're not going to die for it. And so surely if the disciples and Paul were just making it all up, because that's what some critics say. They're like, okay, the, the, the disciples, they were just looking for a new movement. They wanted to try to overthrow the Roman government in some way. And so they were just trying to come up with something. And so they made this whole story about Jesus rising again from the dead. They just made it up. But again, wouldn't one of them have cracked wouldn't one of them, as soon as they're about to be hung on a cross themselves or beheaded, wouldn't one of them have said, whoa, 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 hold on, before you do this, uh, we just made the whole thing up. Right? But yet none of them did. And so, man, that tells me that they truly believed that this wasn't just a fairy tale, that this was a real historical event, that Jesus had been hung on a cross buried in a tomb, and then three days later, rose again from the dead, and they said, we saw him, we talked with him, we ate with him, we interacted with him. This is real. He is truly the Son of God, and he truly has the power to give you a brand new life. They truly, truly believe that. And again, one of the biggest critics is this guy named Paul, who's like, it's just a bunch of fairy tales. It's not real. But then he encounters Jesus. And he realizes that it is. And he receives this brand new life for himself. And so Paul writes these words in 2 Corinthians 5.17 that I hope are an encouragement to you here this morning. He says, this means that anyone who belongs to Christ has become a new person. The old life is gone and a new life has begun. The key word there to me is the word anyone. Does anyone include you? Are you a part of anyone, yes or no? Yes. Anyone means everyone. So here's what I want you to do this morning. I want you to put your name in that verse. That if Bob belongs to Christ, that Bob has become a brand new person. The old Bob is gone and the new Bob has come. That if Mary belongs to Christ, the old Mary is gone and the new Mary is has come. You put your name in that verse. That if you are in Christ, you can become a brand new person. You can hit that reset button. You can get all the things that you want spiritually. You can know that your spiritual sin debt is paid for. You can have a brand new life and you can know that your eternal future is secure. You can have all those things here this morning. If anyone is in Christ, here's the problem. A lot of people are confused. What does it mean to belong to Jesus? What does it mean to be in Christ? And so what I want to share with you here for the remainder of our time today is sort of two misconceptions that people have about that. And then I want to give you the, the correct answer. What, what is the solution to everything? So if you're taking notes here this morning, go ahead and look uh, with, uh, on your outline the first thing, that I often don't realize the magnitude and the effect of my sinfulness often don't realize the magnitude and the effect of my sinfulness. It's been a, probably, I don't know, eight years ago or so now. I woke up in the middle of the night one time, and I had this sharp, stabbing pain right on the inside of my knee. I mean, it 
hurt. It felt like somebody was taking glass and just like jamming it in and twisting it around in my knee. Man, it was painful. And it was like a quarter size, like little thing that was tender to the touch and it was burning. I mean, you could actually like touch it and it was warm. Oh man, I'll be honest with you here today. It was so painful. I was crying like a 14 year old girl at a Justin Bieber concert. I mean, it, it was, it was, it was bad. And so as the night goes on, my knee starts swelling to the point that I can't even bend my knee anymore. It was just, I thought, man, I must have twisted. I must have done, I wasn't sure what was going on. And so I thought, well, I'll give it, you know, to the morning here and, and I'll see what's happening. And, you know, I may have to go to the emergency room or the doctor or something and figure out what in the world's happening here. But as the day went on, all of a sudden the swelling went down. And within 24 hours, it was like nothing had ever happened. I was like, well, that's really weird. What in the world? And then a couple months later, it happened again. But this time on the other knee, but in the exact same spot on the other knee. And now I'm scratching my head, what, what is going on? But it swells up, and then within 24 hours, like nothing ever happened. Turns out, thanks to WebMD, Teresa. <laughs> turns out I have gout, and it's caused by a food allergy. There's certain foods that I eat that what happens with gout is you get high uric acid levels when you eat these certain foods. And what happens is that uric acid actually crystallizes right in that particular spot in my knee. Some people get it like in their toes or other places. Mine happens to be in the knee. And so it crystallizes. And so it's those crystals that I feel that are in there. And it's just irritating. It's just, oh, it doesn't feel pleasant at all. And the, why, the reason I'm telling you this this morning is, oh, by the way, the worst one is Cheez-Its. And I love Cheez-Its. But I had to give up Cheez-Its. Because it just sets it right off. But here, here's the thing with my gout flare-ups. What I put into my body affects my body. There are side effects when there are certain things that are in my body. Now with the gout, it's sort of immediate and it's very, very painful. And again, the reason I'm telling you this story this morning is that's the exact same thing that sin does in your life. When you have sin in your life, there are side effects to it. Now, here's the problem with sin, though. Again, with my gout, it's immediate and it's painful. Sin isn't that way, is it? Now, this is going to sound weird to hear from a pastor, especially on Easter Sunday morning, but let's just be really honest. Sin is a lot of fun. And if it isn't, you're not doing it right, okay? <laughs> If sin wasn't fun, you wouldn't need people like me to tell you not to do it. Think about it. If every time you sinned, it was immediately painful and you had consequences for it immediately, you'd be like, I'm not going to do this anymore. But that isn't the way life works, is it? And so we end up doing things that displease God, that are wrong according to his word, but yet, because it's not immediate and painful consequences, we're like, oh, it must be okay that I do this. Yeah, I heard God said for everybody else not to do it, but for me, it must be okay. I'm different. I'm special. There's been no consequences here. But listen to me carefully. 
sin does have consequences. In fact, Paul in another portion of Scripture says it this way, Galatians 6, 7, 8. He says, don't be misled. You cannot mock the justice of God. You will always harvest what you plant. Some of you have heard it, that you'll reap what you sow. He says, those who live only to satisfy their own sinful nature will harvest decay and death from that sinful nature. Here's the deal. Even though you may not always recognize the consequences of sin, you do realize that you're a sinner. All of us do. And again, we think that we're getting away with it, but I don't think there's anybody here that's going to say, well, I just simply, I don't sin. And there's a part of us, and it's this, this spiritual longing that God's put inside of you that you want to be in a right relationship with God. You want to know that that spiritual debt has been paid for. But yet a lot of times, you know, when we, when we get the, the mirror, and, and we're, we're standing there and we're looking at ourselves in the mirror, there are things that we just simply don't like about ourselves. Not physically, but we're being honest and we're saying, man, there are some aspects of my life that just aren't really pleasing to God. This is not my lipstick. This is my wife's lipstick, just in case you're wondering. So some of you, when you look in the mirror, not only do you see yourself, but maybe there's some things that you've done sexually that are against God's word. Now, let me be very clear here this morning because some of you aren't uh, around church a lot and, and you think that God hates sex and stuff. Look, God was the inventor of sex, okay? Sex is a great thing. But God does have some guidelines for how that works. And so sex before marriage, you know, after you're married with somebody else, there's all kinds of things that he does say it's wrong. And some of you have done some of those things that you know God says is wrong. And so when you look into the mirror, not only do you see yourself, but you see that sexual sin that, that you committed. And you beat yourself up over that. You think, you know, there's absolutely nothing that I can do to change. For some of you, it's this. It's an addiction. An addiction. By the way, they don't pay me to have neat handwriting, so especially with lipstick. But some of you, you're, you're involved in, in drugs, you're involved in alcohol, you have a, a pornography addiction, you have, you know, whatever your addiction happens to be. And when you look in the mirror, what, what do you see? You don't see God's special child, God's creation. What do you see? You see an addict. For some of you, it's this. You've become bitter. Somebody did something to you and you're hurt and you, you're carrying that pain. You're carrying resentment. And, and that's what you see is you see this, this bitter person that's staring back at you there in the mirror. Again, there's, there's all kinds of things that you and I end up having in our lives that we don't like the reflection that we see. For some people, what you have is a complete secret. There's some sort of sin that maybe you did in the past, maybe you're currently doing, 
And you think that if people really knew me, and they knew that that's sin that I'm involved in, that people wouldn't love me anymore, they wouldn't accept me, they'd have nothing to do with me. And so every time you look in the mirror, what you're really seeing is a, a hypocrite because you realize you're living a, a very hypocritical lifestyle. Now, there may be some of you that are saying, you know what, I don't really think that I sin. In that case, what's staring back at you is the word pride. So the Bible makes it clear that we've all sinned and we all fall short of the glory of God, that none of us are perfect, none of us are, are truly righteous before God. So we've all got these, these things that are there in our lives. And again, when, when you look in the mirror, what you're seeing is not just your reflection, but you're seeing all these things. You've allowed that to become your identity. That I am so-and-so, the, the sexual sinner. I am so-and-so who is bitter. I am so-and-so, the addict. Whatever your sin happens to be. Again, oftentimes we're tempted to think, well, that's just who I am. I can't change that man or that woman that I see there in the mirror, so I'm just destined to, to live this way for the rest of my life. But remember what Paul said in 2 Corinthians 5.17. He said, if anyone is in Christ, he can become a brand new person. And again, you are a part of anyone because anyone is everyone. All the old can be gone and the new can come. Here's the second thing then I want you to realize this morning. Oftentimes I think that I can clean up my sin on my own. Oftentimes I think I can clean up my sin on my own. Now this has been, I don't know, uh, he's probably late teens, early 20s at this point, but one of my male cousins, and I have three of them that are all about the same age because I can't remember exactly which one. I think it was the middle one. Um, when he was like two or three years old, I guess that's about when you potty train. Is that when you potty train, Bill? You're getting close with Ryan, I'm guessing, yeah, or maybe even a little bit younger. But he was, a, he was a toddler. He could walk around, you know, sort of be somewhat self-sufficient. You know, Kathy didn't have to watch him like all the time. Uh, but he, he had diapers, you know, and that type of thing. Well, here's what he would do. He would go to the bathroom in his diaper, you know, number two, and he would start to get very uncomfortable with it. He would know that I'm dirty and I want to be clean. But instead of going and getting my Aunt Kathy and telling her, hey, you know, took care of business, you know, could you get me a new diaper here? He decided that he was going to take care of it himself. And so what he would do is he would take his own diaper off. Now, keep in mind, this is just a little toddler. This isn't neat. So he would get, you know, stuff all over himself and it'd be, you know, everywhere. And then because he'd be embarrassed about what he had done, he would hide the diaper in the house. <laughs> the funniest place that he did it was he actually took all the toys out of his toy chest, put his diaper in, put all the toys back in, covered it up. So Kathy comes into the room to check on him. There he is standing there, naked as a jaybird, crap all over him, and a dirty diaper nowhere to be seen. Now, in his mind, he thought he was clean. He thought he had done the right thing. But the reality is, 
He just made it worse. Right? Isn't that worse? I don't have kids myself, but I've got to imagine that that's worse if the kid's trying to take care of it themselves. And what you've got to realize here this morning is this. When you look in the mirror and you're seeing these things, a lot of times we're like, I don't like that about myself, and so I need to try to clean it up myself. And if I just scrub hard enough, I will be able to take care of it and I'll make it better. But what actually happened here? I actually made it worse. I can't see my reflection in the mirror anymore. It was hard enough when I had that that, that labels that I had put on myself to see my reflection, but it's so messed up, it's so smeared now that I can't even see my own reflection. And see, that's what happens. Anytime you're, you're trying to solve your own sin problem, you're just messing things up. In fact, Here's what Scripture says about this. Isaiah 64, verse 6. It says, We're all infected and impure with sin. When we display our righteous deeds, to God they are nothing but filthy rags. Now, for those of you that call exponential your home, you know we've looked at this verse before. You know where I'm going. Yeah, some of you remember. Because the English translators of the Bible here, they chickened out. And they said, filthy rags. You know what the original is talking about? What Isaiah is referring to here? Minstrel rags. And I want you to notice here that Isaiah doesn't say, all of your unrighteous deeds are like minstrel rags before God's sight. No, what's he say? What's he say? All of your righteous deeds are like that. And so I want you to picture for a moment the, the like absolute perfect day that a Christian could have. What, what in your mind would that look like? Well, probably you'd get up and read your Bible and you'd pray. Maybe throughout the day you went out and you served the poor and the homeless. Maybe in the evening you led a Bible study. And in that Bible study you led somebody in a relationship with Jesus. And all day long you were pure in thought, pure in action, pure in everything that you could possibly do. And at the end of the day you stand there and you look yourself in the mirror and you say, God, look at me. How did I do? And God says, you look exactly like Gilbert's little cousin. You look exactly like a used menstrual rag. It's nasty. It's disgusting. I don't want to have anything to do with it. See, you and I, we do have a sin problem. But you and I can't do anything about it. God says, you're trying to be the best person you can and do things trying to earn my favor and merit and my forgiveness. He's like, that doesn't work. That's nasty. And all you've really done is you've just smudged it up and you've made it even worse. You're like, man, this was Easter. I thought we were coming in to get some good news here today. Well, there is good news for you. But before we get to that, let me share one more scripture with you. Because a lot of you, again, you, you think that it's about what you can do to get to heaven. What you can do to be forgiven by God. And I know that there's some of you, you know, you're like, isn't just the simple fact I showed up to church today, isn't that enough? 
The answer is no. And I want to read the words of Jesus about this. Matthew seven twenty one to 23. Jesus says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many of you will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name drive out demons and in your name perform many miracles? Then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you away from me, you evil doers. What Jesus is saying here is, Look, these guys, they were doing many things that looked like they were great acts for God. But yet, at the end, they weren't really in Christ. They didn't belong to Christ. And so it doesn't have anything to do with what you try to do for God. It does not impress him at all. Again, in 2 Corinthians 5.17, Paul says, If anyone is in Christ or belongs to Christ, it doesn't say if anyone's in church doesn't say if anyone's in a Bible study. doesn't say if anyone's in prayer. doesn't say if anyone's in ministry. It says if anyone is in Christ, if anyone belongs to Christ. What exactly does that mean? Well, here's the big thing I want you to get today. If you get nothing else out of today's message, it's number three there on your outline. That the love of God is not something I achieve. It's something I receive. Let's all say that together. It's not something that I what? Achieve. It's something I receive, right? Back in the 1990s when Bill Clinton was president, when he was uh, actually in D.C. on Sundays, he attended a church, a United Methodist church, uh, Foundry United Methodist. And it was the same church that my Uncle Jeff happens to attend. And what would happen is sometimes we would go down to visit Jeff's church on a Sunday and you always knew if the president was there because there'd be a long line to get in the church. Not because, and it is a big church, but not because there was like overpacked and, you know, that type of trying to get in. It's because you had to go through secret service. Everybody, you know, had to stand there and you got wanded and all that kind of stuff. But there was multiple times that we went to church services and President Clinton was there. And so if you stop and think about it, I have literally spent hours of my life in the same room as the president. But yet if today I decided to, I believe he's up in New York right now living, if I decided to go up there and knock on the door and the Secret Service came and they'd be like, okay, uh, who are you? What are you doing here? And I'm like, hey, I'm here to see Bill. And they're like, well, why? Well, he and I, we've, we spent a lot of time together through the years. They would go back to him and say, Mr. President, Gilbert Thurston's here to see you. And he would say what? Who? <laughs> Who? Here's what I want you to get. Proximity doesn't mean that you have access. Let me say that again. Just because you're in close proximity to someone doesn't mean you have access to someone. To have access, you have to have relationship. This is why your kids' relationship is why your kids can come into your bedroom during the middle of the night. But if a stranger comes into your bedroom in the middle of the night, you're going to shoot them. Relationship gives you access. And that's what you need to understand. It's not proximity to Jesus. It's not knowing things about Jesus that gets you forgiveness. It gives you the new life that gets you heaven it's relationship with Jesus. That's what it means to be in Christ, that you're in a relationship with him. 
And again, not that you just know a lot of intellectual things about him, but that you actually know him. Again, in 2 Corinthians 5.17, Paul says, if you're in Christ, not around Christ, not aware of Christ, not know a bunch of, uh, of intellectual knowledge of things about him. Actually, Jesus' brother James at one point says, even the demons know a lot of things intellectually about Jesus, but yet you and I know demons aren't going to make it to heaven. He says you've got to be in Christ. You've got to belong to Christ. But how do we do that? Again, it's not by achieving something. It's not by doing things. It's about receiving and believing Romans 5.8, Paul says this, But God showed how much he loved us by having Christ die for us, even though we are sinful. And you know, really, that's what Easter is all about. Easter is all about that we don't like that person that we see in the mirror. And we've tried through the years to, to do things to, to make it right with God, but all we've done is we've made it worse. What Easter is about is that God loved us so much that he himself came to this earth in the person that we call Jesus Christ. And Jesus lived the perfect and sinless life that you could never live. And then he died on the cross to shed his blood so that all of your sins could be forgiven. Here's what you need to understand about the cross. The cross isn't a piece of jewelry. The cross isn't a, a, de- a decoration that you put up on your wall. No, the cross is a declaration of God's love for you and a declaration that your sins can be forgiven and that you can have a brand new life. See, Jesus didn't come to clean up your mirror. Jesus came to destroy your mirror once and for all. That it's gone, it's over, it's dead. You're done. The old you is gone. And now, the new you has come. He came to give you a fresh start, a brand new life. It's gone. All that stuff that you've identified before, it's not there anymore. You're not so-and-so the, the, the sexual sinner or so-and-so the addict or so-and-so the, the bitter or so-and-so the secret sin. When Jesus came and died on the cross, he came to give you new life. And the cross is not complete if there wasn't that resurrection. That's what we're here to celebrate today, that Jesus didn't remain in the tomb. He rose again from the dead. You're brand new. If you are in Christ, if you belong to Christ, the old is gone and the new has come. So my question to you this morning is this. When did you receive that in your life? Because here's what Scripture says in, in John 1.12. It says, To all who received him, to those who believe in his name, he has given the right to become God's children. When did you receive him? When did you believe in his name? And I'm not asking this morning, when were you confirmed? I'm not asking, were you baptized as an infant? I'm not asking, did you raise your hand in a Sunday school class as an eight-year-old? I'm asking, as an adult, when did you come to the place where you acknowledge that I am a sinner, I've messed up, and, and I can't do anything about my sin on my own, I can't clean myself up? The only way that I can do that is through the shed blood of Jesus and through the power of his resurrection. When did you receive that? When did you ask for his forgiveness? And ask him to come in and take control of your life. See, this whole forgiveness thing, it's not just a get out of hell free card. 
This is a, a total transformation that he wants to give you. When Paul encountered Jesus, that, that, that first time, that resurrected Jesus, he didn't just say, oh, thanks, buddy, now my sins are forgiven. I'm just going to keep living my life the way I've been living it, and one day when I die, I'm going to go to heaven. No, when he encountered the resurrected Jesus, there was the old Paul that died and a new Paul that came to life. And this Paul was on fire for Jesus and said, my mission now in life is to proclaim this good news to as many people as I possibly can. And see, this is what the Bible would call repentance. That Jesus will forgive you of your sins, but it's not enough just to continue to live in those sins. No, he wants you to turn from those sins. Literally, that's what the word repentance means, is that you are walking one way, but now because Jesus is in your life, you, you turn and you start going the other way. You start going God's way. And so I'm asking again this morning, when was it that you made that transaction with him that you said, the old me is dying. I live no more. I'm now turning giving my full life to Christ. If you've never, ever done that, the Bible says that today is the day of your salvation. That today is the day that you can be forgiven. That today is the day that you can know that your spiritual debt has been paid. Today is the day that you can get a brand new life. And today is the day that you can know what's going to happen for you for all of eternity, that your future can be secured. So if you haven't made that transaction with them, I'm going to give you the opportunity to do that here in just a moment. Let's pray. Father God, thank you so much for this day. And Lord, we thank you every single time that we're able to come together to worship you. But um, especially today, uh, we thank you for your love and your grace and your forgiveness. And Lord, I, I just thank you that you did not remain in the grave. You rose again from the dead. You have the power over sin and sickness and death and disease. And, and you have the power over even hell itself. And You came so that we may have a brand new life. And so, Lord, I, I pray here this morning that if there's anyone that has not yet received that new life, that they would make that transaction with you here this morning that they would just right there in their seats humbly acknowledge that, God, I am a sinner. I've messed up. And I now realize that there's nothing I can do to save myself. I can't be good enough because all my good and righteous deeds are just like filthy rags in your sight. And so, God, in faith, I'm going to put my trust in you to forgive me of my sins. I'm going to ask you to send your spirit to live in me, to give me a brand new life so that I can start over, hit that reset button. And go on from here. So with every head bowed, every eye closed here this morning, if you've never prayed that prayer before and you're ready to do that, and I'm not going to acknowledge you in any other way just than what I'm about to ask you to do here, so don't feel embarrassed or anything. Every head bowed, every eye closed. If you've never prayed to receive Jesus' forgiveness and leadership in your life, would you just raise your hand up nice and high so I can see it? Anyone here this morning? Jesus, I need your forgiveness. I need your leadership in my life. Yes, sir, down here. Thank you. Anybody else? Jesus, forgive me. Yep, right here in the uh, middle. Thank you. Anybody else? Jesus, forgive me of my sins. Come into my life. Be the leader of my life. I want to know beyond a shadow of a doubt that if I were to die today, that I'd have eternal life with you. And I want that fresh start that Gilbert talked about this morning. Anybody else? Quickly. Anybody else? Jesus, forgive me. Give me a fresh start. Brand new life. All right, I'm going to ask everyone to uh, just pray this prayer with me. Just repeat it after me. Dear Jesus, thank you for coming to the earth. 
living a perfect and sinless life, dying on the cross, rising again from the dead, so that my sins can be forgiven. I acknowledge I'm a sinner. I need your forgiveness. I need your leadership. So I repent of my sins. Lord, help me from this day forward with the help of your Spirit to live the way you'd have me to live, to do the things you would want me to do, to say the things you would want me to say, and do it all in a way that glorifies you. Lord, thank you so much for the, the two that have raised their hand here this morning, and I'm sure there may be some that uh, just they didn't want to raise their hand, but they did make that transaction with you. And Lord, I just pray that for everybody and, and those that are listening to this podcast here this morning, that, Lord, we would all just take a little bit of time today to reflect on just your goodness and your love and your grace and your mercy how much we don't deserve any of that, but yet you freely gave it to us anyway. Jesus, thank you that you have forgiven me, that you continue to forgive me, that you've forgiven these people that sit before me, and you're going to continue to do that. Lord, help us to walk in our new identity, that the old Gilbert has died, and on July 27, 1993, a new Gilbert came to life. I pray that we would all just walk in that reality every single day of our lives, that the old us, that old sinful us has died. Now we walk in the newness of life, and the newness of the, the power of your spirit and the, the power of your resurrection. God, help us to be who it is that you say that we are, that is forgiven, redeemed, holy, sons and daughters of the living God. I thank you that this isn't a fairy tale that we celebrated today, but a real historical fact that has changed not only my life, not only the lives of the people that are here, but literally billions of people over the past 2,000 years. God, help us now to be your ambassadors to keep getting that message out to as many people as possible. I pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.